According to the Oxford English Dictionary, the term infrastructure, now used to describe the basic systems and services that are necessary for a country or an organization to run smoothly, originated as a military term in the 1920s. This means it has been in use for just over 100 years. However, its usage predates the Anthropocene, the current epoch of geological time in which human activity has dominated the environment, climate, and ecology of our planet causing many of the crises we currently face and will face in the future. This is Megan Schaefer with the Oxford Comment. On today's episode, we're discussing the state of human infrastructure in the Anthropocene with a particular focus on how research can best be used to inform public policy. For our first interview, we were joined by Oxford Open Infrastructure and Health co-editor-in-chief Patrick Harris. Oxford Open Infrastructure and Health, or OOIH for short, is a new transdisciplinary journal that provides an important link between human health and all forms of global infrastructure. It embraces complex perspectives, political controversy, and cutting-edge theory when dealing with issues that challenge the balance between infrastructure and health, such as ecological devastation, climate justice, health inequity, and more. Dr. Harris has been an investigator on competitive research funding and has 160 publications across his career, including 80 journal articles and a recently published book, Illuminating Policy for Health. Hi, Patrick. It's great to have you on the podcast. Would you mind introducing yourself? Yes. So my name is Patrick Harris. I um, am an academic um, working in Australia, although I work internationally um, as with the journal. Um, I work for a university called the University of New South Wales, and I run a centre called the Centre for Health Equity Training, Research and Evaluation. Thank you so much. How has your background led to your vision for Oxford Open Infrastructure and Health? So my colleague, um, Evelyn Deleu, uh, and I um, had the idea for the for OIH a couple of years ago. Um, my, my background's really in um, actually, both of our backgrounds really in health, uh, focusing on health and cities um, uh, with a, a particular policy uh, focus on political science and understanding how um, cities are, are, are made from a political perspective. And my work um, really led me um, for over the last decade, um, led me to look at um, what's called land use planning um, or urban planning. Um, and in, in that work, I came across this small, but then eventually very large thing called infrastructure, um, which was essentially um, quite unknown um, at the time to public health people. Uh, and we we showed some work I did showed that infrastructure is a real issue for people who are working, particularly around understanding cities. It's almost like infrastructure is the the the, the main mechanism by which cities are made. You know, if you think about things like roads or or buildings or um, energy, uh, water, all these things uh, are, are what's called infrastructure. But public health, uh, which is my discipline and my, my background, um, even though we're interested in something called the determinants of health, which links health to what happens in, in society, um, uh, we hadn't really made the back, back the link back to infrastructure. So that, that I'd made that link um, through some research I did. And then um, Evelyn and I got together and Evelyn's backgrounds uh, also in, in she ran a journal called the Health, sorry, Health Promotion International. And um, 
we had this idea together that the infrastructure was the new major issue for, for public health. So she decided uh, to contact Oxford University Press and then um, we put in a proposal for the journal, uh, which was accepted and we're delighted to be in the place we are today. You mentioned in a blog post written with co-editor-in-chief Evelyn Deleu that the outlet OOIH provides has never been more urgent. Can you elaborate on that urgency within the Anthropocene as it relates to infrastructure and health and how OOIH is poised to meet it? Yeah, so, I mean, I think the, the urgency of, of climate change and, and the Anthropocene is, is not in doubt. So, you know, you can see well, in fact, at the moment, we've got a, a heat wave of spring and it's 36 degrees here in Australia today. Um, and we've got fires um, raging around different parts of, of Australia, despite it being um, only spring. And you in the Northern Hemisphere have experienced terrible fires this summer. Um, and really, you know, the problem with the Anthropocene is that it's here. You know, it's it's actually not, not this idea that it's going to happen in the future. It's here. Um, and um, clear patterns that have been predicted by science are being experienced as part of life now. And so what we what we need to do is action, essentially, and infrastructure is is part of that action. And the links to to health are from from infrastructure and climate change are not are not they're they're well known, but they're not really made concretely. And that's what we want um, the journal to do. So both how infrastructure um, mitigates and also adapts, um, helps adapt to climate change are really crucial questions. And, and focusing in, as I was saying before, about what, what infrastructure is and how it can help both mitigate the effects of climate change. For instance, you know, ceasing investment in unsustainable and damaging infrastructure like coal mining. Um, that's a bit of a no brainer for the health of the planet, but you know, there are questions about why is that disinvestment so slow? Um, and we know that the investment in in that kind of uh, energy infrastructure is is really poor for 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 health globally because of climate change, but also locally for things like um, air quality um, and poor air quality, and also a really challenging um, problem for for people when they're working in that industry is is how do you decarbonize that industry while also giving people um, jobs and, and meaningful jobs in 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 uh, in future energy infrastructure that that's more sustainable. And then thinking about things like adaptation. So, what kind of infrastructure is needed to support the future of a planet at, at global and local levels? So, there's a really interesting, a good example of this is there's a really interesting um, body called the Climate Overshoot Commission, and that commission's recently produced a report on how to reduce the risk of, of basically temperature overshoot. So going over 1.5 degrees, which is is, is very likely to happen. Um, and it talks about infrastructure-based actions, like um, it, so things like exploring solar radiation modification by cooling the planet, by reflecting sunlight through clouds, um, and it's also even, you know, space-based infrastructure that, um, you know, uh, modifies the, the, the radiation from the sun and will keep the planet cool. Now, these things are, are almost sound crazy, but there there really are options that are on the table, and they're infrastructure options for for the for the planet. But the problem is, is that the commissions asked for a moratorium on that action because the evidence and the science is not yet clear enough to to really proceed. Despite um, there there's a political demand for that to proceed, and then thinking locally, so why is it that things like electric vehicles are touted as as a sort of sustainability savior for for cities? So um, the challenge with cars is that uh, even EVs is that we know that they create infrastructure which is challenging about how cities 
run. So if you only run on cars, you're less likely to have a city that's that's conducive for, for health and well-being, um, even though we need cars. But the fact that there's so much primacy put on on roads is not the answer. So the better infrastructure question is how to do different types of infrastructure that support how cities function. So just building roads tends to be about freight, really. So moving moving freight around cities, not actually people, but then people use their cars if the road's there, which clogs up the road again, for instance. And what really needs to happen is, is um, we need better evidence about what different types of infrastructure options will work better for health, particularly in cities um, uh, locally. What are the components you look for when determining a publishable paper for OOIH? Well, we're very um, open to different types of knowledge. So we see science as a, as a sort of multifaceted um, uh, exercise. So uh, we want the best type of robust empirical data, um, but we also want um, good critical reflection about the state of knowledge um, in the field of infrastructure and health. So many people don't realise that evidence gathering adheres to a certain set of rules. So whether or not it's quantitative or qualitative, uh, and what we need is uh, across both those types of journal articles is a strong rationale for the work, deep engagement in previous scholarship, if that exists, and it usually does exist, um, a clear articulation of methodology and methods, and that's all tied together with an excellent narrative or, or story. In the journal's guidelines, you state that OOIH encourages narrative pieces that may be more visual in essence. Can you elaborate on that, as well as this interest in different approaches to the presentation of research? Yeah, so again, thinking about my, my background as a, as a so really from public health, public health research usually works on, on the basis of words, right? So we, we um, write a report, uh, we uh, look at other people's papers and all those kind of things. But if you're working in, in infrastructure, you might be a planner, so you might be someone who works visually on planning um, uh, aspects of, of wherever city or a big piece of infrastructure that goes into a city. Or you might be an architect uh, who's designing a, a big building or something like that. Um, and that means that we were interested in the idea that people would want to present their work, not necessarily through the medium of, of words. And that would be um, things like drawing, things like photographs, those kind of things that we know people use in their day-to-day -day work if they're planning um, a piece of infrastructure. Uh, and we thought that would be a really good opportunity with this journal to think differently about how though we can get those types of people to, to, present, um, to present their work differently. One of the recurring elements in your work and within the editorial board and journal site is a push for policy change. What's the best way that you've seen to go from published research to policy change? Uh, it's an interesting question because a journal like ours has a, a particular niche within what's called the sort of research to policy dynamic. Um, so being open access helps. Um, that makes the, the the paper more accessible to everyone, including policymakers. But anyway, regardless of, of that, policymakers tend to be super busy. They're also pretty distracted um, and also driven by many demands that are quite different from, from academics and, and researchers, and often academics and researchers don't understand that. So the best way to get policymakers' attention is really about the content of something, is really to write a policy brief, which tends to be a few hundred words or a page of best uh, that gets to the point and makes recommendations about what policies or actions are needed. Um, and we have that policy brief as a, as a particular type of article 
uh, or a particular type of publication for the journal, but we also suggest that all submissions consider doing um, a policy brief uh, because it really helps distill that information for, for super busy, super distracted and often, um, you know, kind of disinterested uh, from the detail policymakers. And also Evelyn and I, um, as editors in chiefs, our, our backgrounds in, in pol political science, as I was saying before. So we, we have quite a good understanding of, of, of the dynamics of policymaking and, and we can, we can help uh, potential authors think about um, how to, to position their, their work uh, uh, as best as possible to, to, to attract a, a policymaker to it. A special issue revolving around AI is currently being developed. Can you talk more about that and let us know what you see as the perils and promotions of AI, specifically in regards to infrastructure and health? Yeah, um, so um, I, I, one of our, our editorial boards um, actually came up with the, the, the idea for for um, the AI. So her name is uh, Sarah Skenazi. So she's from, uh, from Works for Google, actually. She's leading the special edition. Um, and as part of that has identified ways that AI can be useful, um, but also risks as part of a, a, of the call for, for articles. And the premise, uh, to answer your question, the premise of, of AI is that AI is infrastructure, right? So it underpins current and future um, uh, societies and by really supporting decisions that make those societies run. So for instance, if you shop AI, can, when, when you shop, when you've used your credit card or, uh, you know, the, the data about your shopping can be used by AI to predict what your preferences are um, and use that data to make your lives easier based on what it thinks you need. Um, at a more societal level, um, AI can inform how a city is run, for instance, based on data about things like health services, transport, crime, schools, and what type of population fluctuations there are and so on. So uh, AI is potentially useful um, and Sarah and others who when they've been putting the special edition together have, have focused on things like how AI can be used to work towards the achievement of the United Nations Sustainable Development Goals, as well as other significant global objectives around climate change and global health, for instance, the Paris Agreement and the WHO's triple billions target. And that's things like enabling data discovery, generating insights from complex data sets, improving predictions, diagnosing, planning and monitoring, accelerating scientific discovery, and also things like innovation and translating innovation into to using data, um, approximating simulations, and also uh, messaging and communication can be facilitated through AI. However, AI also has lots of risks with it that we don't really know much about, and they usually concern uh, what we call uh, equity. So uh, in public health and other disciplines, equity is about who wins and who loses from something. So who benefits and who doesn't from AI? So for instance, how equitable and representative are AI algorithms? So does AI perpetuate inequity for those who have less uh, by overrepresenting those who already have good access to goods and services, like people who are more able to buy certain things or more able to use certain types of technology, are they preferenced over others? Um, there's also historical perspectives about the ethics and, and equity focused um, research using uh, AI and things like that. Um, and uh, also more actively, so how does AI actually empower its users, like diverse stakeholders, and, and how do you do things like co-design uh, with communities? So working with communities to understand problems that AI can actually then address. And then finally, really um, thinking about, you know, not everyone's literate in things like AI and also that AI information might be misused as something which is a, to the detriment of people's, people's health. In conclusion, are there other timely topics you would like OOIH to address? One of the benefits of, of, 
of the journal is that that we are very urgent so thinking about things like climate change is really important and crucial that we get good evidence as i've talked about so far and really the infrastructure connection um, links to public health through acting on making better infrastructure in the face of climate change is a really un unknown um, unknown quantity almost and that's a, a space that i really think the journal could fill very quickly because there's an urgency to it one of the challenges is that the recent climate change agreements have been focusing on local action um, in response to climate change but often um, local action is not um, connected up through to, to what happens at a, at, a, at a bigger policy level either um, in somewhere like the states you know at a, at a state level or a federal level um, same here in Australia what happens locally often doesn't get supported at a state or a federal level um, despite needing that innovation and that kind of local action around infrastructure is really important um, you know you think about something like the heat the heat island effect in cities that's an infrastructure problem that usually defaults down to, to local communities or or local levels of government but but how do we how do we get that action happening uh, at multiple levels um, is, is a really important question I think that we'd like to answer um, another one is actually more of a policy focus, but I think one of the challenges we have at the moment is around in policy is infrastructure policy is how do assumptions um, get put into practice. So AI is a good one, right? So what, what assumptions actually go into AI to, to make the predictions work or to make the data, the big data sets work in the way that they do? Often we don't really break down what those assumptions are. So I was talking about road building before and, and coal mining. That the, the need for, for that type of infrastructure is based on a set of, of usually economically driven um, assumptions. And we don't really know much about how those assumptions uh, support or get in the way of, of infrastructure for, for human health. Um, and uh, the last thing I, I wanted to say is we're really keen on getting really strong empirical pieces um, through the through the journal. We've been setting up the journal really um, through with our editorial boards through a lot of, of sort of setting the scene pieces. Um, and we've also published a few reviews, but we're really keen on on getting some really strong data driven pieces um, from around the world really to to start building the case for for um, how um, infrastructure really works and interacts with human health um, in the ways that I've I've discussed. Thank you so much for joining us today and for sharing more on Oxford Open Infrastructure and Health. I just wanted to say a big thank you to, to you guys um, and thank you to Oxford University um, Press for, for being so supportive of us, of the journal. Um, and I'd also like to thank our editorial board. Um, and uh, we look forward to, to hearing from people around the world who want to make submissions to the journal. Thanks. Our next guest is Jonathan Pickering, co-author of The Politics of the Anthropocene, the winner of the 2019 Clay Morgan Award Committee for Best Book in Environmental Political Theory. We spoke with him about how the shift from the Holocene to the Anthropocene has affected our core infrastructure systems and how good governance can help us mitigate the many challenges we'll face in the future. Hi, Jonathan. Thank you so much for joining us today. Would you mind introducing yourself and your scholarship? Sure, thanks very much and thanks for the invitation to, to join the show. Um, so I'm an associate professor at the um, Canberra School of Politics, Economics and Society at the University of Canberra in Australia. And my work mainly encompasses questions of democracy and justice in uh, global environmental governance um, and more, more recently looking at um, environmental governance at the, at the national level as well. 
before teaching in international relations a few years ago, I did a postdoc at the Centre for Deliberative Democracy and Global Governance, also at the University of Canberra. And uh, there I was working uh, with John Dreisek, um, who's the founder of the centre, and we were working on a project on uh, deliberating in the Anthropocene. And so this is how my first exposure to, to the Anthropocene and uh, some of the debates around it came about. And uh, in 2019, it was uh, we published a book um, uh, with uh, OUP on the politics of the Anthropocene. How do we define the Anthropocene? What differentiates the Anthropocene from the Holocene? And what conditions facilitated the emergence of a new geological epoch? Well, to clarify what the Anthropocene means, it helps to start with the, the geological epoch that we're still officially in now, known as the Holocene. So this epoch began around 11,700 years ago, at the end of the last ice age. And for most of the Holocene, the Earth's climate has been relatively stable, and in that in turn provided relatively favourable conditions for the emergence of large-scale agriculture, subsequently cities, industrialisation, and so on. But of course, that brought with it um, a growing range of environmental impacts, um, impacts on the geology of the planet as well. And 20 or so years ago, the scientists um, Paul Crutzen and Eugene Stormer proposed that humans had altered the planet to such an extent that we'd now left the Holocene and ended in an epoch known as the Anthropocene. Some some people pronounce it Anthropocene, of course, um, and John and I had various debates about uh, about that, but we uh, uh, agreed to disagree on the, on the basis of, uh, you know, um, like the song about you say tomato, I say tomato. So um, anyway, in geological terms, the Anthropocene is still a proposal, and to become a formal epoch, it would need to be endorsed by the International Commission on Stratigraphy. And if that happens, then it will enter this geologic timescale. And there's division within the geological community about whether it makes sense to recognise a new uh, epoch. And even amongst those who consider that the Anthropocene should be declared, there are questions about when uh, it began. And this is, to a large extent, a tussle over what factors have been driving the Anthropocene. Is it colonialism? Is it capitalism? Industrialisation? And so on. So a, a working group that's part of the International Commission of Stratigraphy has been looking into this issue of the when the Anthropocene started, and it's argued that the, the mid-20th century is the most plausible starting point. And this is because the, the post-World War II period marks the beginning of what's known as the Great Acceleration. And this is a period involving a, a really a step change in global production and consumption. We had the Industrial Revolution, of course, beginning earlier, um, but we really see a, a dramatic uptick in industrialization, technological change, economic growth, particularly in the West initially, but then spreading to other parts of the world. And this corresponding rise in the extraction of natural resources, all the environmental pollution associated with industrialization brought with it a range of problems, not just sort of local level pollution, but increasingly environmental impacts at a planetary scale, climate change, large scale deforestation, biodiversity loss, and so on. 
Now these changes are becoming evident in the geological record itself, but they've also destabilized the planet's life support systems. And in doing so, they're putting the well-being of humans and countless other species at risk. So in the book that John Dryzak and I wrote, our argument ultimately didn't hinge exactly on when the Anthropocene began or even whether the term got the seal of approval from the geological community. But in any case, the idea has taken on life of its own in many areas of the social sciences and humanities. As you can imagine, there's also a robust debate about the term, a number of critiques, and we address some of these uh, in the book. But for us, the, the fundamental issue was that the planet is now entering unknown territory and our political institutions need to find a way of coming to terms with this. In which practices or ways of thinking from the Holocene are we still engaged and why is this problematic? Well, many of the practices that we might consider relics of the Holocene are what might be commonly called unsustainable practices, say burning fossil fuels, bulldozing rainforests, polluting oceans, rivers and so on essentially exploiting the planet without regard to what effects uh, will happen for the planet's life support systems. And there's a fairly basic way in which those practices are problematic in that we're undermining the conditions um, that uh, we as humans and non-human world need to flourish. But in the book, we go a step further in our diagnosis of the problem, and we trace many of these unsustainable practices back to the role of dominant institutions that emerged during the Holocene. And these institutions remain stuck in what we call pathological path dependencies. So one example of this might be, say, markets that generate profits by ignoring or externalising their environmental impacts. Or another example might be governments that rely on resource extraction to maintain their authority. So these path dependencies decouple human institutions from the earth system, the earth's life support systems and so on, by repressing information about uh, the condition of, of the planet, prioritising narrow economic concerns, short-term self-interest and so on. And as a result, these institutions aren't capable of dealing with accelerating rate ecological degradation, but continue to worsen it. So these, these path dependencies are partly a product of institutional inertia. So institutions take a long time to build and they're often very resistant to change. But there are other kinds of entanglements. Right? These path dependencies are reinforced by certain underlying ideas and discourses. You know, the idea that we can sustain economic growth indefinitely on a planet with finite resources. But the path dependencies, importantly, are also connected with the physical systems that institutions are entangled with. And these physical systems, infrastructure uh, being an example of this, can often take a long time to build it as, as well and also can take a long time to change in response to uh, changing conditions. How might our transition into a new epoch affect core infrastructure systems such as transportation, energy and water supply? And how might this transition affect systems of social and economic infrastructure? The Anthropocene is already having major effects on many different types of infrastructure. 
So often when we think about infrastructure, it's the physical in infrastructure that comes to mind, things like transport, energy, water supply systems, as, as you mentioned. But you could say there are other kinds of infrastructure as well, um, including nature-based infrastructure, social infrastructure. These are discussed amongst other things in uh, the most recent assessment report of the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change. So nature-based infrastructure might include things like urban trees, parks, wetlands, and so on, while social infrastructure in a broad sense, you know, includes things like uh, the institutions that underpin how our societies function, social welfare systems, health, education, and the like. And all of these types of infrastructure are increasingly at risk from the instability associated with the Anthropocene. Now, climate change is only one facet of the Anthropocene. Maybe it's the one that might first come to mind for people. Um, it's also the area that I'm more familiar with. So I might just give a few examples from, from this area. So one of the biggest dangers of climate change is a risk that the Earth could reach dangerous tipping points, say where warming reaches a point where major glaciers melt, we end up with sea levels rising potentially several metres. And at the extreme large areas of major cities could be submerged, Mumbai, Manhattan, areas of the Mekong Delta and so on. Uh, some small island states uh, like Tuvalu, the Pacific. And of course, any infrastructure in those areas that's submerged will cease to function. But the problem extends much further. So even before sea level rise gets much worse and you know even in areas that are much higher, climate change is already putting stress on infrastructure and this stress will only continue to build. So for example, many bridges, railways and buildings aren't designed to cope with higher temperatures and infrastructure can also be hard hit by uh, the disasters like fires, floods, cyclones that are expected to increase in intensity or um, frequency as a result of climate change. So in my home country of Australia, you had uh, huge bushfires in 2019-20 uh, and they not only wiped out huge areas of bushland, killed uh, billions of animals, dozens of people, devastated thousands of homes, uh, but they also hit uh, transport uh, infrastructure, caused blackouts where energy infrastructure was hit. And different infrastructure systems are interlinked. So damage to one sector can have knock-on effects. You, know, um, you might have uh, flooding that disrupts energy networks, which then in turn disrupts transportation systems, healthcare systems, and so on. And so far, I've mainly talked about the impacts of climate change on infrastructure, but it's also the case that physical infrastructure itself has been a major driver of climate change. Right? If we think about the, the fossil fuels we burn to generate electricity, uh, manufacture things, and so on, uh, transport, and the enormous amount of in, uh, physical infrastructure that we've built will also leave traces on the, the geological record particularly for uh, all the concrete we've made. Apparently it's the most abundant uh, human created material on the planet. And ultimately, so we need to be concerned about what impacts climate change, other Anthropocene problems will have on infrastructure, how in infrastructure is contributing to 
climate change. But one final point that's perhaps worth making is that when we're thinking about these these impacts, we're ultimately not just concerned about the infrastructure for its own sake, right? The infrastructure is there for a purpose. And ultimately, we need to be thinking about how these uh, impacts on infrastructure affect people's ability to live decent lives. So I've already mentioned how low-lying areas will be more heavily affected by sea level rise, but a common thread worldwide is that by and large, the poorest and most vulnerable will be hardest hit by the impacts of climate change. So this may be because they have limited or unreliable access to the infrastructure that they need to meet their basic needs, you know, electricity, running water and so on. When disasters hit, they may be hit harder because the infrastructure fails on them. And there was a tragic example earlier this year where there was heavy flooding, uh, rainfall and flooding in in Libya. And uh, this led to the collapse of two dams, which in turn flooded, flooded the city of Derna, killing thousands of people. And Extreme rainfall events like this are made more likely by by climate change. Dams are designed to handle rainfall up to a point, but it seems that in this case there were a range of failures and they took place against the backdrop of conflict, corruption and government neglect. So infrastructure is an important contributor to the problems we face in the Anthropocene um, and accordingly uh, we need to rethink how infrastructure is designed and and governed so that um, we're in a better position to ensure that infrastructure serves the, the purposes that support people's lives. What should define good governance in the Anthropocene and what, if any, steps might we have already taken towards achieving this? Well, given the instability associated with the Anthropocene, it's a little hard to say that any one single model of good governance is going to work out for all situations. But we do make a broader argument, which is that good governance in the Anthropocene requires institutions to cultivate a quality that we call ecological reflexivity. And reflexivity combines three main elements. The first is a capacity on the part of institutions to recognise their impacts on social and ecological systems and to listen to feedback from those systems. Second, institutions need to critically reflect on their core values in the light of this feedback and in the light of their experiences. And then thirdly, to give effect to that rethinking, institutions need to respond by transforming their values and practices. And so the idea is it's centered around a recognition of environmental impacts and ability to critically reflect, but importantly, and ability to act on that uh, reflection. Well, how do we create reflexive institutions? There are a couple of different aspects. This one is about the nuts and bolts of institutional design, if you like, and the other is a broader political question about what kinds of forces or um, drivers could trigger the kinds of reflective practices that we need. So in terms of the questions of institutional design, it might sound like reflexive institutions need to be as flexible as possible so that they can change tack as needed if um, ecological conditions change. But the thing is that if 
institutions are going to protect human and non-human well-being over the long term, they also need to have a certain amount of stability. And in the book, we describe an institution that can balance this mix of flexibility and stability as a living framework. So this term might recall the idea of a living document that evolves over time, but it also suggests the idea of a framework for living, so a framework for flourishing under unstable conditions. Contrast this with many of today's institutions that are so unresponsive to ecological conditions that they're perhaps better understood as zombie frameworks. Now, as for the second question I mentioned about where triggers for reflexivity may come from, it could be a range of sources. It could be scientists, activists, media leaders in government or business and the like. But we argue that democracy has a critical part to play. One reason for this is in a democratic society, people on the front lines of environmental change have more of a voice and more of an opportunity to send early warnings to leaders, to policymakers about the threats that they're facing. So democracy is a vital element. We also need to think about dismantling barriers to reflexive um, governance. So um, they could include things like vested interests that are successful in uh, distracting the attention of leaders from uh, progressive reforms. So perhaps reform to you know, uh, campaign donations, lobbying and so on, maybe reform of concentrated media ownership that ends up serving as a mouthpiece for business as usual. But as for the second part of your question, which was about uh, what steps have uh, been taken so far. I'm a bit hesitant to say that we can find many examples of living frameworks in practice. There are examples across history of Indigenous societies that have lived sustainably for thousands of years, but we can still find hints of reflexivity in some existing institutions. And at the international level, where most of my work is focused, there are a handful of examples of successful efforts to solve global environmental problems. And perhaps the, the poster child for this is the regime for restoring and protecting the ozone layer. As for climate change itself, some would say uh, that, well, the Paris Agreement shows some signs of reflexivity in the way it encourages countries to regularly review and update their commitments on climate change. This is a controversial one because, of course, we haven't managed to get the world on track to meet the Paris temperature goals of uh, two degrees, uh, warming, let alone 1.5 degrees. But we have managed to bend the emissions curve compared to where it was heading under a business as usual situation. So arguably, the Paris uh, framework and the associated efforts of countries, cities, communities and businesses and so on um, have had some effect. It's just that we still have uh, a long way to go. How might such governance better position us to effectively mitigate what challenges our infrastructure systems may face in the Anthropocene? If we think back to the idea of pathological path dependencies mentioned earlier, well, infrastructure itself is often tangled up in these path dependencies. 
physical infrastructure like highway systems, electricity systems and so on take a long time to build, take a long time to reconfigure. And often you have large bureaucracies built around this infrastructure that can also be quite resistant to change. So there's this double challenge of breaking out of these old path dependencies, constructing new forms of infrastructure governance that are both durable and flexible as well. So in other words, we need to transform our physical infrastructure, but at the same time, we also need to transform the institutions or the social uh, infrastructure around it. And as I mentioned as well, there's another twin challenge, which is that we need to reconfigure our infrastructure to make it better able to handle the impacts of the Anthropocene, but we also need to ensure that it is reconfigured so that it doesn't contribute to the environmental degradation associated with the Anthropocene. Now, I might say a, a little bit about the uh, energy infrastructure sector, which is something that I've been thinking about recently as I've been working on a project about the rollout of solar and wind energy in rural Australia. And reflexivity in this context requires rethinking how we produce energy and what effects it has on the planet. Now, a fairly minimal amount of rethinking might get you to the point that, well, we need our electricity systems to transition away from fossil fuels to renewable sources. But then the next step is, okay, we need to do this in such a way as to minimise other adverse effects. And so you need to think about, say, supporting uh, workers, coal-fired power plants who might be out of a job, but also about minimising the environmental impacts of extracting the minerals needed to build renewable infrastructure. At a more fundamental level, though, reflexivity might require rethinking what kinds of purpose infrastructure should serve in our lives and how it should be governed. So if ultimately our energy systems are still fueling economic growth for its own sake without making people's lives better in some meaningful way, maybe we should think about what we do with our energy and whether it's possible to scale back our energy demand so that it's focused more on those more meaningful purposes. And this wouldn't make the task of switching to clean energy sources less urgent, but it would make it easier and cheaper. And similarly, if we're thinking about overhauling our energy infrastructure, we need to be thinking about opportunities to make it fairer and more democratic. So many households in Australia and elsewhere are now generating their own energy on their rooftops, uh, solar panels. And so for many people, the idea of being less dependent on large energy companies is quite empowering. But this shift places other pressures on our electricity systems. At least, you know, how is the electricity system going to handle the influx of large amounts of solar energy, but only at certain times of the day? And there are major investments needed to transform the grid to handle this, this shift. Many people, so particularly people, say, renting their accommodation, can't afford uh, to put panels uh, on uh, their, their own houses, and they're in less of a position to reap the benefits of the energy transition. And they're often having to pay disproportionately for the costs of transforming the grid. So there's a lot of questions there about how energy infrastructure is, is designed and governed 
so that the services that it provides are more accessible and um, more equitable for different communities. Perhaps just one other example. So in many parts of Australia, particularly in rural areas, there's a lot happening to construct new solar and wind farms. These are typically built and operated uh, by large companies. And often these companies will provide some benefits to communities. There will be some jobs during the construction phase. They might, uh, say, sponsor uh, new facilities for communities and so on. But there's very little support in place for rural communities to set up their own energy cooperatives or the like. And these sorts of forms often have a much greater degree of social acceptance and they give communities a greater say in, in decision making. So there are other ways in which we can think about how energy infrastructure could be governed that could be more empowering and overcome some of the opposition that we're seeing in many areas to the dramatic shift in infrastructure in rural areas. Infrastructure is a highly complex area and I don't claim to be an expert on the technical aspects myself. So, you know, it's vital that you have engineers, other experts involved in how it's designed and governed. But at the same time, it's not just an engineering problem or even an economic problem, right? How we should reconfigure infrastructure in the Anthropocene. It's just as much a social and political problem. So we need to pay close attention to the political opportunities for change, barriers to change, and we need to have democratic debates about the future of infrastructure. And, and this is where, say, social scientists have a role to play in informing these debates. And perhaps the last point I'd make is that, well, I've mentioned that governing infrastructure in the Anthropocene is going to be a challenging undertaking but I don't want to suggest that it's impossible. So, you know, some of the steps mentioned, say good public transport systems or community energy groups and so on, are already in place in many parts of the world. So it's a matter of seeing how some of these ideas could be adapted to different social contexts, how barriers to their adoption could be lifted and so on. So we may be entering unknown territory in the Anthropocene, but that doesn't mean we're inevitably going to end up being lost. We just need to find a way forward collectively and democratically. Thank you again for joining us and sharing your insight. Thanks very much. Been a pleasure. We want to thank our guests, Patrick Harris and Jonathan Pickering, for speaking with us about infrastructure and public policy in the age of the Anthropocene. Please check out our show notes on the OUP blog for a recommended reading list exploring just a few of the ideas discussed today. New episodes of the Oxford Comment will premiere on the last Tuesday of each month. Be sure to follow Oxford Academic on Facebook, Twitter, SoundCloud, and YouTube to stay up to date on upcoming podcast episodes. While you're at it, please do subscribe to the Oxford Comment wherever you regularly listen to podcasts, including Apple, Google, and Spotify. Lastly, we want to thank the crew of the Oxford Comment for their assistance on today's episode. Episode 88 was produced by Stephen Filippi, Ed Amar, and me, Megan Schaefer. Thank you for listening.